Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka, here with the brothers-in-law, uh, Dean Vic Amar. Hello, Vic. Hello. And, of course, Professor Akil Amar from Yale University. Hi, Akil. Uh, hi. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I say hello to you on every episode, Akil, but I don't think I ever introduce you as being from Yale University. <laughs> so here you are, and yet you've been there since age 18, right? Okay. Uh, indeed. On my 18th birthday, I arrived. And here's a special announcement about our schedule this week and going forward. Uh, today, of course, we're um, uploading our usual podcast as scheduled. It's part of a, a larger series, a kind of continuation of a conversation about the independent state legislature doctrine. We had taped it a while back, but of course we are aware that as we upload this episode, really important things are happening in the Supreme Court. Um, we have thoughts about them, and we're going to tape another episode, Andy and I, very shortly, and we're going to upload that episode as a, as a special bonus edition of America's Constitution in the days ahead. So you're going to have that even before uh, next week's regularly scheduled episode. We're going to talk in particular about the Dobbs case, uh, the um, the case overruling the landmark opinion, overruling the previous landmark opinions of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And of course, we talked about that Dobbs case at, at great detail in, in previous episodes, we, be, before the oral argument, after the oral argument, and, and when the, the leaked draft appeared. And, uh, and now we've got the, the final word from the Supreme Court, and uh, we're going to give you our early assessment. So stay tuned for that special episode uh, later this week, in addition to this regularly scheduled episode. So we're, we're talking again about this th grave threat to the republic, which ISL theory, that is independent state legislature theory, um, could conceivably pose. And you know, Vic and Akil are trying their best to uh, rid the republic of this threat um, through this article uh, that, that they've written, which will be appearing in Supreme Court Review and um, which is already available on SSRN and which we will link to once again um, on our uh, website, which is akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. And the title of the article is Eradicating Bush League Arguments, Root and Branch, the Article Two Independent State Legislature Notion and Related Rubbish. So um, in our first uh, episode on this, we talked a lot about uh, the threat. What is independent state legislature theory? Why is it a threat? Why is it that it's politically uh, partisan? Um, and then we looked at a little bit of structural um, factors within the uh, our democracy that that causes uh, this phenomenon to occur. Then in our second episode, Vic joined us and we started to talk about the, the arguments that the article made. And basically it makes three arguments um, that, or at least it rests the argument on three pillars um, in discussing what's wrong with independent state legis legislature theory as originally expounded in the, the notorious Bush versus Gore decision and how it is uh, evolved, if at all, uh, since then. So in our last episode, we talked about the first two pillars. And just to summarize, uh, the first one would be 
uh, unsurprisingly, given uh, our, our experts, the original meaning and usage of legislature as the Constitution uses it in Article One and Article II, uh, and a, uh, a grammatical and structural constitutional analysis of that. So basically, you know, independent state legislature uh, proponents talk about the fact that the word legislature appears in the Constitution, saying the legislature should make the rules for the election. So what, why are courts getting involved when it's just the legislature? The legislature sits independent because it only says legislature. So we talked a little bit about what, did that, what does that mean, legislature? What, um, what has the court interpreted to mean? Um, what did the founders have in mind? How, what were the practices at the founding? And so forth. And that by itself is quite persuasive. Um, but there's more. And then in our second pillar, which I think you know, was a little more technical in some ways. I think you might summarize this as uh, trying to answer the question, um, how and why uh, do state constitutions, as interpreted by state courts, apply to federal elections? So in other words, what, why, can, why is it appropriate that state courts have a role in interpreting state constitutions? And in essentially, uh, you know, forcing the legislature to abide by them as they interpret them uh, when it comes to making rules for federal elections. So I'm going to ask Vic to just give a quick summary of that before we move on to the third pillar. Sure, thanks. And, and thanks again for having me. Uh, again, Andy, as you pointed out, uh, the big picture question here is uh, whether state constitutional protections for the right to vote, for example, whether state constitutional values as understood by state courts, whether they apply in federal as well as state elections. Everybody agrees that state courts interpreting state constitutions regulate state elections and the legislatures are stuck with that. But the ISL theory uh, suggests or argues that the state legislatures, as distinguished from the state courts, are somehow uh, immune from state constitutional limitations and state uh, judicial review under those state constitutions, that the legislature is kind of untethered and, and, and off on its own. And as you pointed out, there is a partisan skew to this. I just want to kind of remind listeners um, that because of uh, uh, gerrymandering, which both parties engage in, combined with the fact that the Democrats already <clears throat> tend to live in um, self-sorting, packed areas, urban areas, uh, uh, it's much easier for state legislatures to be heavily gerrymandered in the Republican rather than the Democratic uh, direction. So just as a quick snapshot or that illustrates that, there are seven states that Joe Biden carried that have Republican legislatures, even though they voted for Biden. So Arizona, Georgia, uh, New Hampshire, Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin are all states with red legislatures and who voted for Biden. By contrast, the states that Trump carried, not a single one of them has a blue legislature. And you contrast the gerrymandered legislatures to state offices that uh, can't be gerrymandered because they're elected statewide, like the governor or a U.S. senator. 
And the picture there is much more balanced, much more mixed. For example, there are three states that voted for Biden that have a a Republican U.S. senator, and there are three states that voted for Trump that have a Democratic U.S. senator. So there's much more evenness there. But when it comes to the state legislature, because of the self-sort that Uphill's talked about, combined with uh, aggressive gerrymandering that both parties engage in, um, ISL is a theory that has much more utility for Republican states than uh, uh, legislatures than Democratic legislatures. So back to the big question, um, uh, why is it that uh, uh, the state constitutions, as construed by the state courts, have to apply to federal as well as state elections? So one reason is because that was inherent in the use of the word legislature. Legislature, as used in the U.S. Constitution, is a creature of state constitutions. They're created by state constitutions, therefore they're limited by state constitutions and the state judicial review that's also provided for in state constitutions. The second argument, which you pointed out, uh, Andy, is a little more nuanced, is that state constitutions as construed by state courts apply to federal elections because state legislatures have chosen to involve state courts and state judicial review. So state legislatures themselves have incorporated or borrowed state constitutional provisions when they set up the election regulation system. So by enlisting the assistance of uh, uh, executive officials and state judiciaries, the state legislatures are affirmatively uh, uh, consenting to, if you will, the application of state constitutional norms. Whether or not they had to, uh, uh, um, uh, by, by our first argument, I and I argue that, that state constitutions apply of their own force, but even if they don't apply of their own force, they apply because state legislatures have chosen to apply them by the way they have empowered the judiciary to interpret state constitutions, even in federal elections. And then the third argument for why uh, uh, be, 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 before we get to the third argument, uh, just another way of, of talking about that second argument, which is, Andy, you're right, a, a technical argument. It's about how a certain law applies. Vic used a phrase of its own force. OK, but sometimes a law applies because, in effect, it's been borrowed. So let's take American antitrust law. American antitrust law may not apply of its own force to Indian companies doing business in India that don't buy or sell things in the United States, but the Indian government could, if it wanted to, basically pass a law saying, uh, we want the India to be governed by American antitrust laws. Uh, we think that that's a good set of laws, and, and, and we're going to um, use them for the law of India. And we, they could even say American antitrust laws as interpreted by American courts in some national park, let's say a national territory that exists outside the boundaries of any state, maybe no state law applies of its own force, but Congress could pass a law, and Congress has over the years passed laws that say, oh, we're going to actually apply the criminal law of Virginia to the newly constituted District of Columbia, or we're going to apply the criminal law of Maryland. Congress could say, instead of coming up with federal rules of civil procedure and criminal procedure, we're going to borrow the laws of the relevant state in which the federal court sits, or vice versa. Actually, there are some states that actually say, well, the federal rules of of criminal procedure of their own force purport only to apply in federal courts, but we're going to borrow them, lock, stock, and barrel, and even we're going to borrow interpretations of them by the U.S. Supreme Court just because it's a handy, off-the-shelf way of getting a lot of legal rules that Otherwise, we'd, we'd have to come up with. 
after American independence, some British laws were borrowed by the um, the newly independent United States. Um, just because, again, you, you, you have a, an entire system of rules and reasons and even interpretations that you, you can you can just um, that are that are handy. The argument is, in part, because state constitutions as construed by state courts of course apply of their own force to state elections and because the legislature in a state wants often the federal elections to be governed by the same rules the same um, registration dates and mail-in ballot rules and polling uh, places and times and all the rest given that the state constitutional system as interpreted by state courts applies to all the state parts of the election a lot of state legislatures basically have wanted the federal election to be governed basically by the by the same principles. So even if Vicks and my first argument were rejected, and you said well, the state constitution doesn't apply of its own force, it applies because it's been borrowed by the state legislature. And Vic put it in also a slightly different way because the state legislature has involved, has deputized the state court system to administer this unified election. So if, you know, for, for the layman out there, or at least for those of us that uh, are into computers at all, this sounds to me very much like the way computer programmers work. So, you know, if you want to write an application for your iPhone, you don't write the code for what a button's going to look like, you know, or something like that. You use the subroutines that Apple has provided you with that gives you a button. And That's exactly like that. It's a kind of easy cut and paste. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So those yes. are called libraries, and, the, and this is basically an election law library that they use, that they're using for their state election already. And they say, okay, well, this is also the, the federal election. And actually, it's a, it's a good analogy because when you look at a screen on your phone, you're seeing all of these things that, that Apple has, has helped the developer put there. But then you're also seeing the things that are particular to that, you know, th- that particular program. So, so in the case of the federal election, you have, you know, the line for president, um, but then you have all the other lines uh, for, the, for state, and they look the same, um, you know, be- because they're using that, that library. So let me, let me add one other thing. Um, implicit in all of this discussion is that the, the choice to borrow or to incorporate or to delegate or deputize, whatever verb you want to use, is a voluntary one. Uh, made by the state legislature. So even the ISL theory does not say the state legislature has to be the only body that's involved. ISL theory, which is wrong, um, but uh, it's, it's, it, it, even it is limited to saying the state legislature is the one that gets to make the calls. But there's nothing in, inconsistent with uh, ISL theory and the state legislature having voluntarily made the call to borrow state constitutional norms and apply them through the state courts to, uh, to federal elections. So before we move on to uh, the third pillar, just if I could ask you a question that may have occurred to some of our listeners here. So you're saying the, the state legislature is voluntarily choosing to do this. So presumably then they could voluntarily choose to not do it. Um, yeah. and, then, and then if they did, now you're saying they'd still be bound by you know, the first pillar and the third pillar, but this is just evidence that as it currently constituted, 
no one has done this. Okay. That's so, all right. And, so, and, and that's why this is an so, in, independent argument. The second pillar is independent. Akhil said, even if you reject the first pillar or, or the third pillar, the second pillar would stand. If you reject the second pillar because the state tries to undo this uh, borrowing, then uh, then our arguments would rest on the first and third pillars. But is there is there a degree to which this has become, uh, you know, a standard practice and therefore... Uh, yeah, because every state has always done this, um, and therefore a state that chose not to do it would be an outlier in a way that might uh, run afoul of, you know, uh, you know, of, of constitutional norms. Um, uh, personally, I mean, I'm choking away in on this, but if, if, you, if you reject our originalist argument and our argument from Supreme Court precedent, if, and again, both of those are compelling arguments, but if one were to reject those and embrace ISL theory, then I think a state that did make clear that it did not, a state legislature, that's, that is, that made clear it did not want state courts interpreting state constitutions um, and applying that to federal elections. The fact that they were unusual in doing so isn't inherently a problem the way it might be, for example, when the state of Connecticut unusually regulated contraception uh, in the Griswold case, because federalism and the Tenth Amendment and the Republican Guarantee Clause are all about experimentation by the states, even if that experimentation looks unusual in the moment. I don't think it was a constitutional problem when some Western states experimented with uh, the initiative or the recall and direct democracy, even though they were uh, first movers in that regard. But uh, I'll, I'll let Akhil weigh in on that as well. Yeah, an analogy might be um, Nebraska is an outlier. It's got a unicameral legislature. The other states have bicameral legislatures, but Nebraska is allowed to, to experiment in its forms of government, um, even if it's the only state that does so. Here's another uh, um, uh, unique state. I just learned recently that uh, uh, Illinois allows uh, su- the, the Supreme Court justices themselves to appoint temporary replacements to the court when there's a vacancy before the uh, uh, end of an elected term. So terms are 10-year elections uh, and then retention elections after the first contested election. But if someone resigns eight years into that 10-year term, um, the justices themselves, and indeed, not just the justices themselves, but the justice who's departing often has a personal um, uh, prerogative to pick the replacement for the the next few years. Or to take... Um, Texas, because Texans would be very upset that we're talking about other states and not talking about Texas uh, first and foremost. Um, As I think I mentioned in an earlier episode in passing, Texas has two Supreme Courts, one to deal with civil cases and one to, uh, to deal with criminal cases. And I don't know of any other state that does that, but states are allowed to do all sorts of unique things when they're not violating unenumerated rights. So I guess we could summarize it then by saying that if a, if a state wa- you know wanted to uh, be more independent, they could say, okay, um, we're now going to have a separate election, uh, you know, on election day, we're going to have a separate ballot, and you have to fill out you know this other ballot, and and here's the rules. Uh, now they be, might be doing that in an attempt to uh, avoid oversight by the state court, but in fact, they still would be even in this. Even in doing so, they still would be subject to oversight by the state court because of the first and third pillars. Yeah, the first um, and third pillars are important. Yes. But remember, too, if a state wanted to try to be an outlier in that respect, putting aside the fact that that would violate um, you know, Supreme Court precedent under our third pillar and original understandings under our first pillar, 
it would there would also be um, uh, logistical and political costs for the legislature to do that. Um, you know, they'd have to explain to the voters why they're wasting so much money in having two separate election ballot forms. And they'd have to explain to the voters that they're doing this so that they can escape the limits of the state constitution. The voters of the state that created the constitution that in turn created the legislature might not be so happy about that overt kind of action by a state legislature. Just early in June this year, the... To pick another example, the voters in uh, South Dakota rejected a proposed amendment to the state constitution that would have made it harder for voters to enact things by direct democracy. There was a proposal saying certain sorts of measures henceforth will need 60% of the popular vote um, in order to become effective. That would have made it harder for the the ordinary voters to basically um, displace the legislature uh, through things like uh, initiatives. And the voters actually voted that down. Uh, They want to um, they voted to give themselves more power, you know, um, and to give the in effect, the state legislature less of a monopoly in lawmaking. Um, And and they voted down overwhelmingly, something like two to one. And interestingly enough, that uh, proposed amendment to the state constitution would have raised the threshold um, required for uh, in the initiative to 60% only as regards to tax increases, which are never popular among the people. And yet uh, the voters still uh, rejected this amendment and chose to keep in place the 50% threshold for direct democracy uh, because they value direct democracy uh, that much. And direct democracy, to repeat, you know, the point is in some ways a limit on or an alternative to at least the legislature. So in giving themselves, the voters, more power, retaining more power um, for future direct lawmaking, they're constraining the legislature. So that's further evidence for Vic's proposition that the voters might not be amused when the legislature is basically trying to grab more power for itself. Indeed, as we'll see uh, in the Arizona case and, and, and cases even before that, um, it's, the, it's direct democracy that ends up wresting away from state legislatures the power to draw congressional lines, as was true in Arizona and isn't true in, in, uh, in other states as well. So in other words, I think you're saying that in, in, in this respect, the people are the legislature, right? So that, that's you know, that, so that's that's the definition the, the, the of people are the ultimate legislature. Right. Yeah. Well, but I mean, in terms of this, this ISL argument, yeah. you know, you have to have this broader view of the word legislature. And this is not just, well, you have to take a broader view because we're trying to avoid, you know, the plain meaning of the word. But actually, the plain, as you said, <laughs> Princess Bride, the plain meaning of the word is not what you think it is. So I think that's actually a good uh, um, segue then to this third yes. pillar of uh, precedent, because a lot of the precedent does involve direct democracy, it turns out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so having uh, reviewed and provided some perspective on the first two pillars, which we discussed in an earlier episode, now it's time to fulfill the promise that we made in that episode, namely that we would discuss the third pillar, which has to do with the court's own precedents. So Vic, where would we start? Well, we could start with Bush versus Gore because that's, um, as we point out in our article, the the, the uh, decision that kind of resurrects this whole concept. Um, but it's important at the outset to note that Bush versus Gore, which actually consists of two separate rulings by the Supreme Court in a short time period uh, in 2020, neither of them 
relied on ISL to reach the result that, that it, it reached. So in the first case, which is known as Bush versus Gore 1, the Palm Beach County case, the Supreme Court decided nothing on the merits and simply remanded to the Florida Supreme Court for more explanation for what was going on in Florida. Um, there was some language in that first Bush versus one case that referred back to an 1890s case. I'll talk to talk about in a minute called McPherson versus Blacker that did um, shoot his mouth off about ISL. But because that Bush versus Gore one did not decide anything, indeed the Supreme Court said, because we don't know exactly what the basis of the Florida Supreme Court ruling was, we declined to resolve any of the uh, questions presented uh, before us. So that was a nothing burger. And then Bush versus Gore two, where they stopped the counting, uh, relied primarily on the Equal Protection Clause. There is this uh, concurrence written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by Justices uh, uh, Scalia and Thomas that we've adverted to, but that did not command uh, five justices. Indeed, um, those three justices who who embraced a version of ISL um, were, were uh, that 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 position was explicitly rejected by four other justices in Bush versus. Gore too. So, so to the extent that the, the Bush versus Gore um, says anything about ISL, there were more justices who rejected it than embraced it. But, but Bush versus Gore itself um, purported to draw on this 1892 case called McPherson versus Blacker out of Michigan. And McPherson versus Blacker is not about ISL at all. It's about presidential elections. Um, and there's some language in it that the court used that some people say supports ISL, but it's really important to understand that that is the rankest of dicta because the case in McPherson did not involve anything related to ISL. McPherson versus Blacker involved the following question. Can a state, in this case Michigan, allocate its electors in the Electoral College on a congressional district-by-district district basis rather than a statewide winner-take-all basis. So today, virtually all states um, look to see which presidential candidate won more votes statewide and then gives the whole pot of, of electors to that winning candidate. But there are a few states, uh, Nebraska and Maine, that allocate electors based on which presidential candidate won in each congressional district. Um, and that's what Michigan was trying to do in McPherson versus Blacker in 1892. And the question was whether that's permissible under Article Two of the Constitution. And the court rightly said that it was. The states have the leeway to uh, to pick electors however they want. Um, each state shall appoint in whatever manner it wants um, electors to the Electoral College. En route to that bottom line, the court in McPherson versus Blacker had a few inscrutable um, sentences that seemed to suggest plenary power on the part of the state legislature. But then it also had a few sentences that none of the ISL people quote, much less um, uh, deal with, uh, that said um, uh, that the state legislature that suggested that the state legislature is in fact. Uh, uh, bound by uh, state constitutions. There's a passage in Blacker that the ISL folks never really uh, deal with that says, quote, the legislative power, that is the power of the legislature, is the supreme authority, and now I quote, except as limited by the constitution of the state. So there's an acknowledgement in that passage that the legislature is limited by the state constitution. Elsewhere in Blacker, the court commented that, quote, the legislative power of appointment appointing electors to the Electoral College, could not have been successfully questioned, 
quote, in the absence of any provision in the state constitution. So there are two places where McPherson versus Blacker recognizes the supremacy of the state constitution over the state legislature, even as there's some other cryptic language that suggests primacy or independence of the state legislature. But the facts of the case the bottom line of the case has nothing to do with ISL, even though this is the best that the ISL folks had uh, in Bush versus Gore. This is the, all, the only thing that they could point to with these stray words in McPherson versus Blacker. There are several other cases that are much more directly on point, especially as regards Article One and congressional elections. So the first important case in the Article One setting uh, is in 1916, and that's Davis versus Hildebrandt, which involved direct democracy by Ohio voters. The Ohio legislature had drawn congressional districts, but under the Ohio Constitution, if enough citizens uh, signed a petition, then uh, the voters would be asked whether they want to approve or disapprove of what the state legislature had done. And in this case, the voters wanted to disapprove the congressional districts drawn by the elected legislature. And the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the state legislature, invoking ISL theories, argued that the people cannot override what the legislature wants to do here in districting because Article I gives the power to the elected legislature and the elected legislature alone. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, no, the state constitution of Ohio contains this provision that allows the people to oversee the state elected legislature, and there's nothing inconsistent with Article I in that um, uh, decision by the Ohio Constitution. The Ohio Constitution can be enforced, um, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it reigns in the power of the elected state legislature. A similar issue was presented um, about uh, uh, 16 years later in Smiley versus Home in another Big Ten Midwestern state, uh, Minnesota. Uh, the Minnesota Constitution um, it involved the use of the governor in all lawmaking, uh, including um, when the Minnesota legislature uh, drew congressional districts. So uh, uh, the legislature passed a law and the governor wanted to veto that law. And the question presented in the U.S. Supreme Court was, could the governor have a role in congressional districting when Article One refers to the legislature of each state? And there, too, the Supreme Court says, as long as the Minnesota Constitution provides for a role by the governor, as understood by the Minnesota state courts, then, um, then that is, is perfectly consistent with Article One, and the legislature does not have the power to cut out the governor, notwithstanding the use of the word in Article One. Um, Vic, isn't it true that in Smiley versus Holm, the court talks about the different functions of the legislature, that they, that, you know, that they do something, they might appoint people, they might confirm people, they might pass a bill, and that there are different, you know, roles uh, that some might involve the governor, some might not. Um, so I'm just wondering if, if ISL people might say that in the case of, you know, election law, that the legislature's role is is well defined by this art by article one um, and therefore it's different from when the legislature does other things. Is that, is that, you know, a, a fair assessment to that? Well, I, I think certainly even, even the U S Supreme court that has rejected ISL in the context of article one um, has made clear that when a legislature is not passing general policies, the way it is when it regulates elections, 
um, that uh, legislature might have a different meaning. I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with what the Supreme Court has said there, but uh, in the Arizona case, we'll talk, to, uh, talk about in a little bit more depth in a moment, Justice Ginsburg um, distinguished Smiley versus Holm and Davis versus Hildebrandt on the one hand, both of which rightly reject ISL, with a case from 1920 called Hawk versus Smith, that involved not Article One or Article Two or, pre- or federal elections at all. It involved uh, a federal constitutional amendment under Article Five of the Constitution. So, Article Five of the Constitution says that when um, um, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution is proposed by a Congress, having passed two thirds of, of the House and the Senate, it takes effect uh, when it's ratified by the uh, legislature of three fourths of the states. And so um, in in Hawk versus Smith involving the 18th Amendment and prohibition, um, again, the Ohio uh, uh, Constitution provided for a referendum. And so uh, what what happened there was the Ohio legislature ratified the 18th Amendment. The governor communicated that ratification to the U.S. Secretary of State. The U.S. Secretary of State proclaimed the 18th Amendment to be part of the Constitution, having been ratified by 36 states. And after that, Ohio voters tried to um, uh, uh, raise signatures to have a referendum to, um, to override the Ohio legislature's decision to ratify the 18th Amendment. And the Supreme Court said you can't do that. And I think the, the result in Hawk versus Smith is correct. Because once an amendment has been recognized by the U.S. Secretary of State as valid, once a state has communicated ratification to the feds, finality kicks in and a state can't, do, uh, can't try to undo that. But if the Ohio initiative folks, or referendum folks, I should say, had gotten in there at an earlier time and tried to block the communication of ratification from the Ohio governor to the feds um, uh, uh, and wanted to have the referendum at that time, I think it would have been a wholly different question. So the result in Hawk was correct, but some of the language in Hawk is very broad in saying when Article 5 refers to legislature, it refers to the elected body rather than the people themselves acting in a referendum. So the Hawk for Smith language is the best language the ISL people have on their side. But in Davis versus Hildebrandt and Smiley versus Holm, and then again uh, in 2015 in the Arizona case, what the court has said is legislature might mean something different in the context of a binary up-down ratification under Article 5 than it means when the legislature is passing generally applicable laws as it does when it regulates federal elections. Remember, Articles 1 and 2 just say the legislature has a role potentially in prescribing the manner of the election. That's not an up-down decision. That's a policy choice about how the election should be held. And in that setting, legislature means legislature subject to the legislative process laid out in the state constitution, not this body that's allowed to do an up-down binary um, uh, decision. So this is a very serious podcast, and we're getting into real technical issues, into the weeds of it. This is what the Supreme Court will be grappling with when it finally um, focuses on the issue. This is what clerks need to understand. Okay, so we're giving you, Vic is very candid, the single best case maybe on the other side, Hawk, and he he explained why it's different. Um, There are two points to be made here. One is the point that Vic made, that maybe legislature for constitutional amendment purposes, Article 5 purposes, which refers, when Article 5 refers to state legislature, that's a different kind of thing because it's this up-down 
um, yes, no, we ratify, we don't ratify decision. And that's very different from the kind of role that Article 1 and the kind of role that Article 2 envisions when those articles refer to state legislature, because that's actually kind of passing laws, you know, of regulating congressional elections and presidential elections. That's a VIX distinction. Here's now a, a different point, a, a related point. Vic is the dean of the University of Illinois, and he just kind of casually and playfully mentioned Big Ten states, you know, Minnesota, Ohio, he's at, at Illinois. But that kind of playful and casual reference actually ha- has a deep substratum to it. It's a reminder that states are different and that the lawmaking procedures and, uh, in different states are different. Many states have direct lawmaking, plebiscitory systems of initiative and, and referendum, but not all states do. And there's actually sometimes, a, not sometimes, there, there's a, a geographic pattern. A direct lawmaking is more characteristic of the West. At the founding, we had town meetings in some places, in New England, but not in other places. So, and this is especially a second reason why the United States Supreme Court, using some ISL idea, should be very, very cautious because it's limiting the ability of different states to experiment with different kinds of lawmaking and maybe even to have certain special purpose legislatures for certain special purposes like congressional districting or or state legislative districting. Maybe Arizona, and Vic is going to talk about Arizona in just a minute, but it's not a surprise. It's a Western state because uh, direct lawmaking is very characteristic of uh, Western states, like very famously California or Oregon, Washington, now Arizona also in the middle. Colorado. Colorado. I'd be surprised Um, if they, in the end, if they said, no, you can't, uh, you you know, it, it has to be the elected legislative body because... Like you said earlier, um, you could have a state which got rid of the leg- legislative body. Or had two, all- two elected legislative bodies. One, you know, legislature A for most of the laws, and the second, legislature B, which might be called a commission, but that's just, a, you know, a, a label uh, that actually regulates the apportionment of legislature A. Um, indeed, indeed, Andy, in Hawk versus Smith, when the Ohio Supreme Court was going to permit the uh, referendum to go forward, uh, one of the concurring justices, and I wrongly, in my William and Mary Larvey article, attributed this to the whole court, but I, I went back and I looked, it was only one of the justices. He invoked exactly the hypothetical that you, uh, you just did. He said, look, a lot of us think there's too much lawmaking these days. What if the state of Ohio decided to uh, uh, suspend the elected legislature for a decade and proceed entirely by direct democracy. Um, is it possible that we would be cut out of the federal amendment ratification process for a whole decade if we did that? Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, kind of rejected that in reaching the result that it reached in Hawk. But I want to make this point very clear. The Hawk result is correct. And there's language in the Hawk opinion that's not as broad uh, um, about the distinction between the legislature and the people. There's other language in Hawk that talks about the need for clarity and the problems with confusion with regard to the ratification process. 
the Secretary of State of the United States had already proclaimed the 18th Amendment to be part of the Constitution. How could the voters of any state, much less the state of Ohio, think that they could undo that after that? So, so the, the result in Hawk is right, but and, and, and arguably some of this language is dicta. Um, but it is the best language that ISL people have to hang their hat on. But the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015 in the Arizona case that we'll turn to right now, I think, um, distinguished Hawk by saying that was a binary up-down, yes-no decision, and uh, the, the, the word legislature means something different there than it means in Article One. But since ISL is all about Article One and Article Two, the relevant precedent is the Arizona precedent and the Rucho case uh, four years later that doubles down on it, Hawk versus Smith, whether right or wrong, whether loose in its, in its language or not, is off to one side. And the more recent case says that, because when we talk about cases, a more recent case that limits an earlier case, it's the more recent case as a matter of precedent that the government's just like when there's a statute at time T1 and there's a, another statute at time T2 later on, the second statute, if there's an inconsistency, typically prevails. So and indeed, why don't you tell them about the Arizona case? Yeah, and I so wish in this Arizona case the court had made the additional point that Hawk versus Smith was correct on his facts in any event because of this finality concern. Uh, it would have been nice if Ginsburg would have mentioned that. So the Arizona case... Hey, Vic, Vic, hang on. Just be, I, I know I invited you in. And let me just, uh, but just to, to, to loop back to something that Andy and I have talked about in many prior episodes, we've talked about precedent and the weight given to precedent. And we've talked about how sometimes precedents are clearly right on their facts but not perhaps um, in all the the language and rationale. Uh, uh, Our listeners will recall that I think that um, Roe versus Wade was actually right on the facts given that it it invalidated a Texas law that limited women's bodies, their liberty and equality, that no woman had voted for because the law actually was passed long before women got the vote. So on the facts of Roe versus Wade, you know, that's um, uh, easy and obvious to strike down that old law. Now, Roe said all sorts of other stuff that I had lots of questions about. But it's just a reminder when you're talking about precedence, sometimes actually because the facts of a case are so powerful and easy, courts do actually give several reasons too many, or maybe even, you know, the the, the wrong ones um, for the right result. And later courts can go back and say, well, you know, all that other language is dicta or at the very least un- unnecessary um, or unfortunate, but the case was rightly decided. Right. And, when it, and when an older case that was correctly decided is recharacterized by a later case, then it's that recharacterized meaning that it carries forward. Yes. So um, in the same night that um, either Al Gore or George Bush was elected president in, uh, in 2000, the voters of Arizona passed an initiative that took uh, away from the elected legislature the power to draw uh, state legislative or congressional district lines, the concern being that they were doing so either to protect incumbents too much or to protect the incumbent party too much. So there's two, you know, um, we tend to today to think about partisan gerrymandering. And of course, we know about racial gerrymandering. There's a third kind of gerrymandering, and that's just to protect the incumbent in each district. And in Arizona, the voters were sick of of incumbent protection and also uh, a partisan gerrymandering. So they passed an initiative that created a so-called independent 
initiative uh, redistricting commission and that uh, that body which was not elected um, but which is uh, appointed and is not supposed to have uh, a partisan skew to it is the one that draws state legislative districts and congressional districts the elected legislature in the state of Arizona essentially sued the people of Arizona, invoking a hard version of ISL, saying Article 1 gives us the power, at least as regards congressional districts. They had to concede that the, the uh, people of Arizona could do whatever they want with regard to state legislative districts. But with regard to congressional districts, Article 1, the elected legislature said, gives us the power. And so they made that claim, and the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and by a 5-4 to four vote, in an opinion authored by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, joined by Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court rejected ISL and upheld this initiative. A couple important points about this. Um, the court could have decided the case on statutory grounds because there was a federal statute in the background that might have authorized um, uh, Arizona uh, voters to do what they did. Remember, as Akhil has, uh, has mentioned in previous podcasts, um, Article 1 um, uh, gives uh, uh, a role to the states to draw congressional district lines, but ultimately Congress can step in and do what it wants um, as a backdrop. And there was a federal statute that you might have interpreted as having uh, essentially blessed or, or uh, uh, allowed or authorized what the voters of Arizona did. But Justice Ginsburg declined to rest on that statute. She said under Article One of the Constitution, this is perfectly permissible that there's nothing in the word legislature that that prevents the people of Arizona in their constitution from taking this power away from the state legislature. And what the court said, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing only a little bit, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's majority opinion said, nothing in Article 1 or in this court's jurisprudence permits an elected legislature to draw congressional district lines um, in, in contradiction of the state constitution. So the state constitution prevails over what the state legislature might want to do, um, and that's perfectly consistent with Article 1. ISL is rejected, full stop. Uh, ISL, if ISL theory were valid, the court could not have done what it did in upholding the initiative in 2015 in Arizona. There's no other way around that. You cannot embrace ISL without overruling that recent case, which itself has been reaffirmed four years later in Rucho versus Common Cause. Um, so uh, I think uh, the uh, Arizona case is one of Justice Ginsburg's better opinions, uh, and uh, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves, but it really um, is a, a full-throated repudiation of um, uh, ISL um, in that in that instance. Uh, and Vic, if I could just, uh, since you paraphrased it, and it is so powerful, let me just quote the actual language of Justice Gin- the late Justice Ginsburg in that opinion. Quote, nothing in Article 1 instructs, nor has this court ever held, that a state legislature may regulate the manner of holding federal elections in defiance of provisions of the state's constitution. And by the way, that's even broader because it refers not just to congressional districting, but federal elections, um, which uh, which would include the presidential elections um, uh, uh, as well. Um, and Vic said one other thing just in passing. He just he sneaks in these things, then there's often a kind of a, a reason behind them. He he mentioned that it's Justice Ginsburg writing for the court, but he said joined by Kennedy. Why is that important? Well, because Justice Kennedy was the swing vote um, on many, many issues for many, many years. Second, because he was 
on the court in Bush versus Gore. And this shows he rejects ISL, you see. And some people think, oh, there's a passage in the, major- in the per curiam opinion that could be seen as a nod to ISL. Well, Justice Kennedy doesn't think so. And he was the driving force behind um, that per curiam opinion. Third, Justice Anthony Kennedy is from the West. He's from California. He's very respectful of our understandings of legislature, which in effect involve not just the ordinary everyday legislature, but the people acting as a legislature periodically in California via a plebiscite, plebiscitory measures like initiatives and referenda. And he understands, oh, well, that's actually California's version of a legislature for certain purposes in certain ways as regulated by wait for it, the state constitution as construed by state justices, Supreme Court justices in the state. So all of that brings us, Andy, um, to a case uh, decided four years after the Arizona case uh, and three years ago uh, called Rucho versus Common Cause. Chief Justice Roberts was one of four dissenters in the Arizona case. He wrote the lead dissent, and maybe the only dissent, I can't remember whether there was a second one, but he wrote the primary dissent. And Uh, He disagreed with Justice Ginsburg. But even he, four years later, came to accept, at least, if not fully embrace, the righteousness of the Arizona ruling in Rucho versus Common Cause. Rucho versus Common Cause is another case involving partisan gerrymandering. And in this case, the claim was that the U.S. Constitution itself prohibits states and their legislatures from taking um, partisan considerations into account too much when drawing congressional district lines. The majority in Rucho found that the U.S. Constitution had nothing to say about partisan gerrymandering, that there's no language or history of the U.S. Constitution that would allow federal courts to police partisan gerrymandering. Part of the opinion is written as a so-called political question uh, doctrine case where the federal courts are staying out of the matter. I actually read it not as a as, as an abstention or a political question out of, uh, outside of which the Supreme Court is staying. I view it as the court saying, we've looked at the U.S. Constitution and there is simply no law here to apply. So on the merits, there's nothing violative about partisan gerrymandering as far as the U.S. Constitution is concerned. But here's the key point. After concluding that the U.S. Constitution does not allow federal courts to rein in partisan gerrymandering, Chief Justice Roberts, for the majority, said the following. We do not condone excessive partisan gerrymandering, nor does our conclusion, and I'm I'm, uh, including some brackets here just for simplification, nor does our conclusion to limit the federal judicial role in controversies over congressional gerrymandering condemn complaints about districting to echo into a void. The states are actively addressing the issue on a number of fronts. In 2015, the Supreme Court of Florida struck down that state's congressional districting plan as a violation of the Florida Constitution. And in November 2018, voters in Colorado and Michigan approved constitutional amendments creating multi-member commissions that will be responsible in whole or in part for creating and approving district maps for congressional as well as state legislative districts. 
So he blesses the very device that was at issue in Arizona. He didn't cite the Arizona case because he dissented there, and maybe he didn't want to draw attention to the fact that he was a loser in that case. But he cites Colorado and Michigan as having adopted the exact same thing that was upheld in, in, in Arizona. And he cites an opinion by the Florida Supreme Court invoking the Florida Constitution to invalidate a a statute passed by the Florida legislature involving congressional districting. Again, as forceful a repudiation of of ISL as you can can imagine. And that... Vic, Vic, hang on. And the reason why, just for the rest of you, is Florida, as in... Bush versus Gore, where this ISL theory in the, in the modern era kind of first um, reared its, its ugly head. So when you're actually, to repeat what Vic just said, saying the uh, invoking um, uh, when you as Chief Justice of the United States on behalf of um, a Supreme Court majority are blessing a Florida Supreme Court ruling using the Florida state constitution to limit the Florida legislature in the federal election situation, you are basically uh, um, smacking down the approach in of the three concurring justices in Bush versus Gore in the most emphatic way imaginable and poetic way. So two, two more quick points about this tandem of the 2015 Arizona case and the 2019 uh, Rucho case. In Rucho, Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all joined the passage I just quoted from, from the Chief Justice in full. You wouldn't know that from what they've been saying about ISL in the last year and a half, but they embraced, they signed on to that language. And indeed, at oral argument in Rucho, this question came up about whether the state uh, courts and the state uh, constitutions could rein in state legislatures. And, and Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, of all people at oral argument, um, they said, well, um, from the Arizona case, we think uh, that state legislatures are, are limited by state constitutions and state courts. So that's one point that all of the justices on the Supreme Court today, except for Amy Barrett, have signed on to this repudiation of ISL. Second point I want to make is. And just because she wasn't on the court, it's not that she rejected it, she wasn't on the court. She wasn't on the court yet. Second argument I would would suggest is, um, in some respects, the the complete displacement of the legislature, which was at issue in the Arizona case, um, uh, that is taking the job of districting completely out of the legislature, is more aggressive than simply allowing the courts to police the legislature in the name of the state constitution. So, so if and I think that actually was what was driving Chief Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts probably, even in 2015, had no problem with cases like the Florida Supreme Court case, where the Florida Supreme Court is is kind of regulating the, the elected legislature in the name of the Constitution. He thought it might be just more excessive to take the job away from the state legislature altogether, rather than to simply supplement uh, what the legislature is doing. But in 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 as Akhil and I have thought about this more, and he can weigh in here, um, it, I, I think once you say the state legislature is limited by the state constitution and the state constitution can do whatever it wants to in the, in the realm of, of congressional districting and presidential elections, 
then there really is no meaningful analytic stopping point that you can draw between um, supplementing the state uh, legislature with popular input, as in Davis, or with gubernatorial input, as in Smiley. Uh, Between that, on the one hand, and taking the job away from the legislature altogether, as in Arizona. I think they're all of a piece. Once the state constitution can control the state legislature, it can do it as much as it wants. But I'll let Akil weigh in on that as well, and I know, Andy, you want to jump in as well. Just before Akil does, I think in terms of Chief Justice Roberts, you can see in in his uh, rulings or his votes um, in the 2020 election on the various cases that uh, that came before the court for either for cert or um, that he consistently uh, said, no, we're not going to take these cases where uh, the state state legislatures are, are where the state Supreme Courts are, are interpreting the Constitution, state Constitution to uh, decide about state legislative actions. And it, and we are going to take the cases that are that are outside of that sphere. Um, and and we're going to take at least some cases where the claim is the federal constitution is being disrespected and a lower court may have overread the federal constitution in limiting what a state can do. But you're exactly right. Um, he's never joined Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, or Kavanaugh in, in indicating any interest in this ISL thing um, uh, uh, in, the, in the past uh, couple of years, which is why uh, um, that coupled with the fact that he wrote Rucho, the fact that he chose to include this language blessing the independent district and commission in Colorado and Michigan uh, and, and blessing the co- the Florida Supreme Court case that Akhil pointed out was a direct repudiation of the Bush uh, concurrent versus Gore concurrence. Uh, I, I think he is he sees this correctly. And, and, and all of this, what we're doing now is really about um, making sure that, uh, that Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett see, see things as they should, and maybe even convincing people like Justice Alito that um, maybe they didn't look at this issue carefully enough because it's been coming up in the shadow docket context, but, um, but good justices revisit things uh, and they, t- they, they should revisit their instincts here as well. And indeed, Chief Justice Roberts, in um, some shadow docket cases, emergency uh, appeals that came to the Supreme Court um, in the run up to the Biden Trump 2020 election, that um, said the following. This was actually like a week before the election on October 26th. Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was contrasting a couple of different cases that had come to the court on an emergency basis. And he says, while the Pennsylvania applications implicated the authority of state courts to apply their own constitutions to election regulations, this case involves federal judicial intrusion on state state lawmaking processes. Different bodies of law and different precedents govern these two situations and require in these particular circumstances that we allow the modification of the election rules in Pennsylvania, that is by the state judges using the state constitution, but not in Wisconsin where federal judges um, were being a little too aggressive. So he very sharply distinguished between, to repeat, state judges using state constitutions to uh, hem in or, and constrain um, state legislatures, even in federal elections. He says, yes, that's okay under our precedents, but lower federal courts should be much more careful about jumping in. So, so he, and that's recent, that's October, late October 2020. So he gets it. Chief Justice Roberts gets it. And I am hopeful that Justice, Ka- Justice Kavanaugh and maybe even Justice Alito gets it. Remember, as Akhil and I argue in our paper, Justice Kavanaugh 
who seems to be um, enamored of ISL in um, uh, uh, the Wisconsin case that uh, uh, came to the court prior to the 2020 election. He then declined to join Thomas Alito and Gorsuch when they um, uh, expressed support for ISL in the context of the Pennsylvania case. So he may begin, has begun to rethink this. And um, in a, in a case that didn't involve ISL um, uh, uh, not too long ago that Akhil and I uh, both noticed this in justice Alito wrote what's called a dissental. He dissented from the court's um, uh, refusal to grant relief. This is a case involved uh, from the third circuit involving a Pennsylvania uh, uh, election statute. It's called a dissent because it's a dissent from a denial of cert. So dissent, or denial of an application. From a, den- a, a denial of a certain source, so dissental. Right. Denial. So in, in this dissental, which is, is, is and always going to be part of the shadow docket because these things are, are uh, resolved um, uh, without full, full briefing, he said, I think I would grant the application that the Republicans in Pennsylvania seek. That's why I'm dissenting from the denial of that application, because I think they have the better of the argument on the merits doesn't matter what the merits are here. But then he added a phrase that, that's, that, that caught my eye and caught Akhil's eye as well. He says, of course, as I look at the issue in more depth with the benefit of more briefing, and I'm paraphrasing, I could change my mind. So it was an acknowledgement by Justice Alito that in this shadow docket context, the justice's instinct may be very different from what the right answer is that they realize um, uh, uh, when they are confronted with more briefing and more scholarship and the like. So, I'm, you know, maybe I'm Pollyannish, but I'm hoping this is the beginning of a graceful way out for people like Justice Alito. So even he can reject ISL, notwithstanding the fact that he seemed to embrace it in a lot of these shadow docket um, uh, dissental settings. It could also be a message to his colleagues, but really saying that you could change your mind. You know, rather than that, he, that he's going to really change. It's it. always a good practice to uh, to be open minded. That's what the judge, justices in their confirmation hearings say they're going to try to do. And, and and Vic and I, of course, are very fierce. They're not supposed to, in general, make promises of any sort about how they're going to rule or even whether they're going to recuse themselves or not. Vic and I are kind of very nervous about um, uh, promises um, in general. But yes, a promise to. Uh, be faithful to my oath of office. That, that, that's, I think, a permissible a promise in the confirmation process. And a promise to try to keep an open mind in every case. That's, I think, a, you know, a, a permissible kind of promise. And they, they, they say they're going to do that. Um, and it's good when they remember that. Okay, so here we are at the, at the end of this, uh, of your article, at the end of the argument. Um, any, uh, any closing thoughts about about this, the you know, we spent a lot of time on this, um, about the importance of it, about, you know, your prediction, um, about the North Carolina case, anything? Yeah, I got, I got, I got one other um, uh, thought, and maybe we've mentioned this in the past, but let me um, uh, put it back on the table. I think the timing of this ISL consideration is a, a, a good thing in the following respect. If the court ends up doing in Dobbs what the Alito draft suggests that it was going to do and repudiates Roe versus Wade and does so precisely because according to the majority of the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade was entirely made up from claw from whole cloth. It really has no grounding or rooting in the constitution. I think that will make it harder for 
fair-minded, or even justices who, who've already made up their minds a little bit in, in favor of ISL, it's going to be harder for them to embrace ISL against the forceful arguments that we've been putting forward, because ISL is every bit as made up as a constitutional right of abortion, uh, maybe more so. Um, and, uh, and so I think, uh, you know, if they do overrule Roe, they, the court ought to be particularly sensitive um, in the short run in not wanting to embrace arguments that are as free form as the kind um, uh, that uh, carried the day in Roe itself. Or put even more um, broadly and optimistically, if one believes, as I do, that Roe has always been a problematic opinion, that it has, be, because it looms so large in our law and politics that it has um, almost by definition deformed constitutional law in certain ways. It's, it's been cancerous in certain ways it, because it, it, it's so big, a set of issues culturally, um, legally, politically, that the repudiation of Roe is an opportunity to correct all sorts of um, problems of American constitutional law. In our Dobbs episodes, I suggested, you know, an alternative to the Alito opinion that the, uh, that the liberals and the moderates could, could put forth. I, I, I doubt that they will, but they, they could, in which I said, well, if you're going to rethink Roe because it's really problematic, let's rethink Gedaldig which is really problematic, that says somehow discrimination against pregnant persons isn't discrimination on the basis of sex. It might be valid in, in various contexts, but, but it is a kind of sex discrimination, surely. So repudiation of Roe opens the door. If it, it eliminates a cancer in our constitutional system, it's um, an invitation to, to rethink mistakes more generally that may have been made elsewhere. Like Bush versus Gore. Yes, like Bush versus Gore, which I think is one of the worst decisions of the modern era. You could believe that even if you didn't share your opinion about Roe versus Wade. In some ways, they're bad decisions in different ways, um, in some ways. You, you could, but because I do believe that the center of the American constitutional project is the written constitution. It's not um, the only thing, and it gestures toward unwritten um, elements like unenumerated rights, unwritten rights. That's why I wrote a whole book called America's Unwritten Constitution. I get it. I believe that. But because the written constitution, in my view, is the centerpiece of the American constitutional project, repudiating Roe on the grounds that it really it isn't aligned with the written constitution is just a, a, a more global reset. Vic and I in an earlier episode, actually quoted the Supremacy Clause and its hierarchy of laws um, in, in kind of order of democratic legitimacy. First, the Constitution, then because which came from the people themselves. They, they voted on it and in a special way, in a kind of plebiscitary way, more plebiscitary than anything else um, uh, around at that time in the 1780s. Constitution first, because it's the most democratic law, then congressional statutes, which are the next most democratic, then federal treaties in which the House of Representatives aren't involved, but at least involves the whole nation, then state constitutions, which are more authentically democratic, um, and then, only then at the bottom, state laws that we quoted that hierarchy of 
of law, the supremacy clause. But of course, but the the key point to the supremacy clause is the real eight hundred pound gorilla, legally speaking, the apex law, is the Constitution itself, and not not just not a congressional statute, not not um, a, a state statute, but also not a Supreme Court precedent, if that Supreme Court precedent is inconsistent with the constitutional text. So if you're going to disregard acts of Congress because they're out of whack with the Constitution, and that's what the Supremacy Clause says, you got to actually have a similar attitude when it comes to Supreme Court precedents that are out of whack with what the Constitution says. And so to your point, Andy, about you know uh, the, the Dobbs draft, it, it's possible at least that this could be an invitation for a larger reset. And if it is, Liberals need to actually know how to play that game. We need to be attentive to the conservative precedents on the books that are um, egregious, maybe every bit as egregious as Roe versus Wade, Shelby County, for example, or, or Bush versus Gore. Those would be um, two of my top picks. I would say actually United States versus Morrison, a case about wrongly invalidating the Violence Against Women's Act, would be yet another one. Well, so cases um, involving the Eleventh Amendment. Um, sovereign, some sovereign immunity issues. So, so, and that's a game that the liberals have to start to learn to play, which goes back, of course, our um, listeners will recall to um, other episodes in which th- this has been a big theme of ours. Right. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, some of our listeners will be conservative, some will be liberal, and there will be some people will, that will be feel that the you know, imminent, if it hasn't even happened already by the time this podcast airs, um, overruling of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case may leave a very sour taste in their mouth, even if it doesn't leave a sour taste in your mouth, uh, you know, Akil. Um, but that's not a reason to not see the opportunity for liberals that, that lies in this idea of rethinking uh, precedents that are, that are bad, um, and reclaiming the Constitution, its text, history, and structure, and recentering American liberalism around the Constitution um, rather than as a critique of uh, all the unfortunate features of the Constitution. And there are some. And then, actually, we can also talk about constitutional amendments. Let's, uh, for example, adopt the ERA pronto even though I think it's actually implicit in the thing. So this is a podcast in which, just to conclude, uh, our audience is always going to get very careful engagement of Supreme Court case, cases, for example. But it's, it's also one, ultimately, it's not a mark as case law or something like that. It's, it's a podcast centrally about the Constitution and trying to center our discourse on the Constitution. And, and Andy, to be clear, I think regardless of what um, the court does with abortion and Roe and Dobbs, uh, ISL um, should be repudiated. I, my point was simply that if the court does reject Roe in these broad methodological terms, um, then it would be particularly problematic for a court to embrace ISL uh, at or near the same time. Right, right. I just didn't want people to misunderstand that uh... – you know, that this becomes a, an easier decision in the light of that, um, but it doesn't require that. Yep, exactly. Okay. Because we've got precedent and text history and structure on our side, whereas arguably in Dobbs, you've got text history and structure on one side and precedent on the other side. Right. There you go. Okay, well, thank you very much to Vic Amar for 
uh, he, he, you know, he, he told me he's going to send me his bill. So, uh, you know, I look forward <laughs> to that. Contributions will be accepted. Um, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be back uh, next week. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, bye.